Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I can't wait to see you. Welcome. We're, we're delighted that you're all here. This is going to be a really interesting afternoon. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is the first uh, here in this year for the Schieffer series, something we're very, very proud to co-host with the Schieffer School of Journalism at TCU. Uh, and, of course, it's named after Bob Schieffer, and, uh, who has been so generous with his time to highlight this very good series for all of us, and we're all richer for it. And I just would like to say thank you to Bob again for this thank you, very, very fine experience for us. Welcome back to Dan Benjamin. Dan was here at CSIS. I'd forgotten it was six years. He said it was six years, two books, and two babies. And that's, <laughs> I, I don't know how all that worked out, but it worked out very well. He's got a wonderful family, and uh, we're just very glad that he's being willing to serve back in government. Uh, I just would like to say a, a word of thanks to Greg Ward and to our very good friends at UTC that make it possible for us to hold this series and to present it for all of you. Uh, they're doing this as part of their leadership in Washington to create a better, more informed society. So we're going to have a very good session. Uh, Bob, thank you again for this. And let me turn it over to you to get us started, for real. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hamrick. I would also like to announce that the director of the Schieffer School, John Lumpkin, is with us here today with his wife, Eileen. He's right on front row. Well, I think if the events of the uh, past weeks have shown us anything, it is that uh, no matter what kind of a campaign, no matter uh, what plans people come to the Oval Office with, uh, no one can control the agenda, not even the occupant of the most powerful office in the world. So many times events control the agenda, and we have certainly seen that with the arrest of the bomber in Detroit, the other news that's come since then. Uh, we have a very fine panel. Ben, uh, Dan Benjamin. Uh, who was here uh, at CSIS, as Dr. Uh, Hamry said, was sworn in as coordinator of counterterrorism at the Department of State with the rank of ambassador uh, in May uh, of last year. Prior to his appointment, senior fellow at Brookings, then the six years before that, he was here at CSIS. 1994 to 99, served on the National Security Council staff, director of the counterterrorism in the Office of uh, Transnational Threats. Uh, 94 to 97, served as foreign policy speechwriter, special assistant to President Clinton. Before uh, entering the government, he was a foreign correspondent for Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal, has co-written two books, The Age of uh, Sacred Terror and The Next Attack, The Failure of the War on Terror and uh, A Strategy for Getting It Right. Arnold de Borgrave, of course, uh, will be very well known to everyone in this room. Uh, he, at the age of 21, uh, how long ago was that? <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, appointed <laughs> the Brussels Bureau Chief of UPI. Three years later, uh, Newsweek's Bureau Chief in Paris at 27, became senior editor of the magazine, a position he held for 25 years. He, he was editor-in-chief of the Washington Times beginning in 1985. Uh, he later served as president and CEO of UPI from 99 to 2001. He has won numerous awards, including Best Magazine Reporting from Abroad, Best Magazine Interpretation of Foreign Affairs. And uh, here at CSIS, he has uh, authored and co-authored numerous um, articles. Jan Crawford, as we welcome home to uh, CBS News uh, as of January of this year, uh, she is a recognized authority on the Supreme Court. Her 2007 book, Supreme Conflict, The Inside Story of the Struggle for Control of the uh, Supreme Court, was a New York Times bestseller. She began covering the court in 1994 for the Chicago Tribune, went on to become a law and political correspondent for ABC News uh, after they stole her away uh, from CBS, where she was uh, appearing often on Face the Nation and, and as a consultant on legal matters for us. She is back now. She's reported on uh, most of the major judicial, judicial appointments and confirmation hearings in the uh, past 15 years. Uh, her reports on the Bush <coughs> administration's legal war on terror and her reports on interrogation techniques have been credited for being the catalyst for congressional hearings. Uh, Jan was the one who first reported that members of the uh, Bush administration cabinet were meeting in the White House in deciding on interrogation techniques. She began her journalistic career at the Chicago Tribune, 1987. Uh, the, she then went to the uh, University of Chicago Law School, 
But before that, uh, she graduated from the University of Alabama. And roll tide, I'd just like to say. <laughs> Which, who had a pretty good year. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and next year, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> next year, they might have to play TCU. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's start with you, Ambassador. Uh, <clears throat> we just had uh, the voice, or what was purported to be the voice of uh, Osama bin Laden, warning us that uh, he was really proud of the Detroit bomber and telling us there may be more. I guess, number one, the, uh, the basic question, do we think that was Osama bin Laden? I don't think there's been an official confirmation from the intelligence community, but I, I think everyone's going on the assumption that it, it probably was, um, sounded like him, with familiar themes. What do we make of it? Well, uh, all we have is this uh, long paragraph, this one squib. And, um, it's, uh, it's interesting, it's, uh, it's characteristic of bin Laden insofar as he is attaching himself to uh, the actions of others, uh, showing his relevance again, uh, or at least uh, aspiring to show his relevance. Uh, I, I think it's uh, an interesting uh, development insofar as you see uh, bin Laden, uh, like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, doing something that we, we haven't seen before, at least I can't remember another time, in which they were uh, treating as a success something that didn't explode, which I think is an indication of some weakness, actually. Um, additionally, uh, the, <coughs> the, th the themes of this brief uh, uh, communication that we have are interesting because bin Laden, of course, has attached himself to the struggles of the Palestinians for a long time. And the entire paragraph, really, is about uh, the Palestinians. And he is... Uh, um, you know, doing this again, and all of the older Al-Qaeda themes are, have fallen away uh, about U.S. presence in the Middle East, for example, and there's, there's this discussion as though um, the United States could spare itself attacks in the future by separating itself from Israel. Now, this is a way to play to the audience because he knows that this is a very big issue uh, for, uh, a large, uh, for large segments of the, of the Muslim world, but I don't remember him ever suggesting that you know, we would uh, improve our own situation by doing something else. I mean, in the past, we were always sort of the genetic enemy. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is uh, interesting. And of course, the final thing to say is uh, that it's interesting he keeps harping on the Palestinian uh, theme since uh, the Palestinians don't want to have anything to do with him. Uh, if you follow these things, you know that uh, bin Laden and... Uh, uh, or, or more uh, correctly, Ayman al-Zawahiri is number two, and uh, Hamas have had a running battle uh, in, um, on the airwaves and, and, uh, and in print for years and years that uh, really reminds you of some of the early uh, sectarian battles between communist, uh, uh, early communist uh, uh, groupings. You know, very, very vitriolic. There's no one in the, in the Palestinian world who wants to be associated with bin Laden. They think he's bad news. Um, and a dead end for them. So it's interesting that they continue to try to uh, portray themselves as the champion. Arno, you have been uh, following these issues for, for a long, long time. How do you sort of assess the threat of terrorism now? Who are, who, what is it that we ought to be most worried about? I think what we have to be most worried about is what happens uh, on the Internet, where they have created a sort of global caliphate for these uh, young, radicalized uh, kids of uh, Muslim families, whether it's in the outskirts of Paris or the outskirts of uh, Denver, you get very excited, some of them get very excited, tuning in to what they believe to be a larger global affiliation. And uh, it has radicalized quite a few people, including Major Hassan. And what was fascinating about the Major Hassan case at Fort Hood is that uh, he had uh, clearly indicated that he was... Uh, attracted by militancy in the uh, Muslim world, and yet in the army report there is no mention of that, and no mention of the fact that his uh, business card says Soldier of Allah, uh, which is, seemed to me would be one of the first things you would put in a report trying to figure out what this guy's all about. But this is how I see the biggest threat today, is uh, through cyberspace. Also, I think we should remember about Osama bin Laden is that he's convinced that he brought down the Soviet Empire because from the day the last Soviet soldier left Afghanistan on February 15, 1989, until the Berlin Wall fell was only nine months. And he's convinced that what he did during the war against the Soviet occupation 
of Afghanistan was largely the work of the uh, Mujahideen that he had recruited uh, from a variety of Arab countries. Jan, uh, you, you watch the uh, legal side of all of this. Uh, it appears, apparently, from what we learned in hearings last week uh, on the Hill, that some people in the government uh, were unaware that this man was the Detroit bomber was going to be charged in a civilian court. And yes, he, wa uh, he was. You had uh, Denny Blair, the director of national intelligence, saying, well, they should have put him in charge of this new committee. What's it called? The Committee of High Ad Value Interrogation. When, in fact, there is no such thing at this point. He had to later correct that. Which was sort of a confidence builder in itself. Uh, <laughs> what, what's going on here? Well, I mean, as I'm sure most of you saw, um, uh, I mean, lawmakers, I think, on both sides were somewhat stunned um, when Dennis Blair testified that no one had been consulted about whether or not um, he was going to be charged, uh, read his Miranda rights. Uh, you know, we would all assume, like, there was a plan in place. Uh, but, in fact, uh, Blair was not consulted, Leiter wasn't consulted, Napolitano wasn't consulted, and even Mueller wasn't consulted. I mean, granted, this all happened very quickly. Um, he was interviewed by agents uh, for 50 minutes uh, as he was going into surgery. Uh, some very uh, unfortunate burns uh, that he had. Do we know what? <laughs> yeah, we can just pause there for a moment. Um, uh, but then he was a decision was made after uh, consulting with headquarters there in Detroit and here at Justice uh, to uh, Mirandize him. So he then uh, was able to get a lawyer and he stopped talking. So they got about 50 minutes of questioning uh, has been reported out of uh, this uh, attempted uh, bomber, uh, and obviously now that's what everyone Do is, we, is have looking we figured at. out where in the government who gave the order to take him into the civilian court No, yet? and in fact, Republican uh, lawmakers have now all, of course, uh, signed a letter uh, asking for that question to be answered. Who made this decision? Of course, a number of people have pointed the finger at the Attorney General, Eric Holder, who has already made a number of um, somewhat unpopular decisions, I think, in this legal war on terror. But we don't know yet who kind of gave the final say, although the, the, the fingers are already, the blame game is already starting, and the Attorney General is kind of the one who's now in the, uh, in the crosshairs on that. Um, but at any rate, I mean, obviously, the, the question is how we proceed uh, with, with uh, terror suspects. And as uh, uh, Blair said in his testimony, he believe that this should have been handled initially by this high-value interrogation group that had been set up uh, for this very purpose, um, but that it was only organized to, for uh, incidents that arose overseas. Uh, then, of course, he later had to come back and say, well, uh, it wasn't quite operational at all. So um, that's something that's going on now in the White House as part of this broader review of whether or not that was, in fact, the right decision whether or not uh, Abdul Matalib should have been, of course, read his rights and put in the criminal process, just like you know some drug dealer who shoots somebody on the street corner. Clearly, the shelf life for his information is very short, and you can say that it would be fine, and you know we can get a plea deal, and we'll be able to talk to him over the period of months. But I think someone—and you may want to address this—but someone uh, in his position uh, kind of sent out. Uh, as a soldier, as it may, that, that intelligence that he has uh, is, it has a very short shelf life. And there is much that can be learned from him, but it could be entirely different in three months. Ambassador, would you like to just comment on that and uh, kind of no. how this was handled? No. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go on, though, I want to ask, yeah, I, wanna, well, I got I, a question. I, I Let mean, me to be up. fair, you know, one of, one of those things that happens to you when you leave think tanks and you go into government is that you learn to say, you know, I'm going to defer that to the Justice Department. And uh, one of the great things about working at the State Department is that um, we tend not to muck around in domestic affairs. So I think I will uh, forbear uh, any comment on that. All right, before we get too far down this road, could we go back to this tape? Because I, I wanted, I think one thing, you know, we saw this tape uh, uh, from Osama bin Laden taking credit uh, from this, this uh, attempted bombing. And, you know, you said, I mean, you think that it shows that you know, maybe they're weakened. Um, but, I mean, isn't there another way? You could also say it shows how closely uh, that they are monitoring us, and they saw that this caused enormous distress here uh, in our government and created great crisis of confidence among our citizens. 
So because of their close monitoring of our situation, they decide to, in fact, take credit for something that really was a failure, as you said, a, a moat with a bomb in his underwear that didn't go off. Um, and while, yes, it shows, I think you could say certainly that, you know, obviously 9-11 was this incredible, sophisticated um, attack that really exceeded anyone's imagination. Um, and so they haven't been able to repeat that, and now they're taking credit for some, you know, mope with a bomb in his underwear that didn't work. But then we saw this report yesterday um, by a senior former CIA official that al-Qaeda is very patient and they're assembling weapons of mass destruction and um, that they're prepared to, that's why we haven't seen some of these attacks um, and that that oh. threat remains very grave and very real and the probability in another report yesterday is that it's more likely than not that we will see that kind of attack somewhere in the world <coughs> soon. Let the ambassador yeah. and then you, Arno, do you, you want to respond to that? Um, to your point about uh, they read us carefully, uh, that's undoubtedly true. And um, um, I, I think it's still valid to say that, in the, that they've been reading us closely all along, and in the past they probably wouldn't have taken credit for something that didn't blow up. But it is certainly true that they, they read us very closely. And um, uh, I always, um, when I worked here, for example, used to cite the best example of this as being a letter that was found on the computer uh, I believe of Ayman al-Zawahiri in, in uh, Afghanistan, in which he uh, thanked uh, the United States for uh, showing uh, the Mujahideen just how important biological weapons were because they wouldn't have thought about them otherwise. So they do read us very closely, and they, uh, they obviously uh, have um, you know, the advantage of asymmetry and the advantages that go with um, being able to read the responses of an open society to all these sorts of uh, developments. Now, um, it is also true that it's uh, a group that has historically had a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. um, that, I, I mean, I don't think that is news. I do think that, um, you know, they're under enormous pressure, uh, particularly in, uh, in the Afghan, Afghanistan-Pakistan border region, so um, we certainly hope that their patience is not repaid. But um, they have been patient. They have a long history of aspiring to uh, use uh, weapons of mass destruction, and uh, we know that this is still on their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously this is uh, the highest threat, uh, the, the, the most potent threat we worry about, and we spend an awful lot of time uh, working on this uh, every day. So there's, there's no question that we still take them very, very seriously and recognize what their ambitions are. Arno? I'd go back to what uh, the ambassador was saying about uh, Palestine and uh, Osama bin Laden's most recent message, because everywhere you go, uh, all the travels I've been in the Middle East and Pakistan and Afghanistan, it is still central. A lot of people poo-pooed this for many years. They've just used it as a pretext, but it's not. You go to the madrasas in Pakistan, uh, Israel is always mentioned right after the United States, and India, then number three. So I think it's going to be very, very long, but I would agree with the ambassador completely, is that they have taken some very bad hits, and uh, I didn't think that the... Uh, the Nigerian trying to blow up a plane and, and being wrestled to the floor by an, a fellow passenger was an example of the kind of stuff that is coming down the pike. There'll be far bigger things. As you may recall, in Kabul, when it was liberated, all sorts of things were found in these safe houses, the Al-Qaeda Al safe houses, little sketches of dirty bombs. And uh, when I... Uh, well, anthrax, I think. The anthrax. And when I was in uh, Kandahar three months before 9-11 to interview Mullah Omar, which is still the only interview he's ever given, uh, there were three Pakistani nuclear scientists staying in the same guest house as uh, we were, my Pakistani team and I. And when we asked them what they were doing there, they sort of smiled and they said, we're here on agricultural projects. And there hadn't been a drop of rain there for three years. How can it be that you mentioned Major Hassan, that we can have a situation where someone is posting inflammatory rhetoric on the internet, and somehow or another, and as best I can find out, no investigator from any investigative agency in the government ever asked Major Hassan, are you the Hassan who's writing all this stuff on the internet? Mm -hmm. Uh, is that what is the reason? That's political correctness. And I you think, think that's what it is. Absolutely, and it's it's uh, visible all over Europe. You have, uh, say, uh, on the Antwerp City Council in Belgium, there's a naturalized Moroccan citizen who spouts the straight 
uh, al-Qaeda line on many issues. And yet he's a Belgian citizen and a member of the Municipal Council of Antwerp. They can't touch him. And nobody wants to denounce him because they're afraid of antagonizing the Muslim communities uh, in Belgium. Are we going to have to change our ways, Ambassador? Which ways are you thinking of? I, I mean, I think that well, well, I mean, one of the things that we found... Maybe the, perhaps ask people if they're the ones who wrote something <laughs> that's on the Internet. Well, I think that the Secretary of Defense has, uh, has indicated that there were clearly failures in, in, uh, in this particular case. And uh, I think one of the things that we have found out very powerfully in the last, uh, in the last month is that this continues to be a dynamic and evolving threat that we will continue to see um, uh, foot soldiers uh, coming from different corners and uh, wearing uh, different guises. And that uh, we know, for example, that our enemies are very eager to find people who um, you know, don't look like what we think they should look like. So in that regard, yes, we are going to have to uh, change our ways. Uh, we are going to have to always uh, maintain our intellectual edge, our technological edge. Uh, we're going to always have to be improving our tradecraft uh, when it comes to intelligence. Um, all of these um, requirements uh, suggest that we're going to be in a, um, you know, in a foot race for a long time, and I don't think anyone in government thinks otherwise. Uh, we were fortunate this time in that we you know, had our shortcomings illuminated for us, and now we can correct them. Uh, Jan, do you think, let me just ask you this question, do you think, uh, I mean, just from a legal standpoint, because now we're seeing not just Republican lawmakers, but some, some Democrats are saying, maybe we ought to rethink this thing of, 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 of uh, charging him in a civilian court. Can they undo that and put him before Well, you've seen some people already uh, say we need to get him back out and get him back in, and that's what now I think you're going to start, I, I don't see any... Um, movement in the administration to do that. I mean, I think they've taken this course and they're going to stay on this course and they're still, at least today, saying that it was the right course and they've gotten valuable intelligence, but they're going to review that decision in the event, you know, God forbid that that, that ever happens again. But I think that as we talk about all these issues, um, particularly even from a legal standpoint and obviously as the Obama administration is now moving forward, um, it's a foot race, um, but in many ways it's, it's a marathon that we're in, and we're in a marathon against an enemy. You know, in America, I think, 9-11 was a long time ago. You know, that, we, we've moved on. We've forgotten about that. And, you know, but we're, we're up against an enemy that is still thinking about the 13th century. And so when we're in this marathon, I think we have to be acutely aware that nine years isn't all that long. And when you think about patience and determination, I think that's what we're up against. And now we have a new administration that is starting to evaluate the policies of the old um, and acutely aware of this rub, and you're going to see this in, in every um, terror program, and you already have. Uh, some have been abandoned, some have been preserved. Uh, this real rub between civil liberties, um, you alluded to kind of the political correctness, um, civil liberties, uh, kind of assuring your base that you fired up during the campaign that you were going to take an entirely different approach than the evil Bush administration uh, versus assuring the American public uh, that you understand the grave threat, uh, the determined enemy, uh, and, and the real dire consequences that we could face as a nation and a world uh, if we don't take this threat seriously. So when we talk about, I think, all of these um, uh, terror programs, uh, that kind of overarching a foundation has to be kept in mind uh, that the president now is really looking at this uh, and trying to grapple with these two very competing interests, civil liberties and, and again, reassuring the American public and doing everything he can to, to keep the American public safe. And um, I think the Christmas Day uh, attempted bombing was in many ways a turning point uh, uh, for this administration. I think this last year we've seen a lot of programs where, and I don't want to tread on, on, on your territory here, but where if you think about it, it's a, a tug between state, uh, the State Department, and kind of looking at um, uh, how we're viewed in the world and preserving our image in the world. Um, state won a lot of those arguments uh, last year. I think you're going to see defense uh, start to take a more uh, vigorous 
uh, approach and, and start winning out uh, going forward. Now, when Obama, I don't want to filibuster you on this Go ahead. going on, sorry. My, you know, you give me a microphone, I'll just start, <laughs> as my ex would say. Um, but I, the president, um, and, and, and uh, I think what we've seen when we look back, he has in fact preserved many of Bush's, President Bush's programs. And I think that surprised a lot of former Bush administration officials. So, you know, when you look at A lot at of second-term programs. Right, uh, right. Uh, I, I think right. of it as a political reporter. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, in many ways, ran against the first-term Bush, but adopt, adopted many of the second-term Bush's uh, programs. Yeah, especially and I mean, that's, on, that's causing on him some problems terrorism. now, because if you think back to a lot of the rhetoric that he used in the campaign and the, the, the way he was going to completely repudiate the evil ways of George Bush, in many ways he was talking about policies that George Bush himself had already abandoned because of the Supreme Court decisions or because of, you know, a few years after September 11th, he was reevaluating them. But the rhetoric of the campaign and what I think the base still believes is that, you know, we're looking at George Bush in 2002, and that's what Obama in many ways was running against. So now that he's in the White House, and lo and behold, you know, he's keeping some of these programs. He's going to allow indefinite detention. Uh, you know, we haven't closed Guantanamo. Uh, you're starting to see this uprising from, from people in, on the left and in the base that he really, uh, you know, is, is not doing, you know, what he said. <coughs> let me, let me just pick up. Oh, go ahead. Well, I would, I would disagree a bit with that. Um, the president is completely committed to closing Guantanamo. Uh, we have found that it is a lot more difficult to do than we yeah. thought on well, January I mean, 20th. Bush wanted to close Guantanamo, though. But, you know, there wasn't a lot done in those days to actually close it. You know, they took some out and filled, filled it back up. So I do think that there is a pretty distinct uh, difference. There was also an executive order immediately banning uh, so-called enhanced uh, interrogation. Uh, there have been a lot of different things that we have done that are quite different. And what, you know, you described the, the tension, the political tension, but <clears throat> I think you have to add one more uh, dimension, and that is um, that as you, th you, know, you, you described it as our image in the world, it's not really just a matter of our image in the world. One of the things that I think the president has brought to this uh, issue is a constant focus on the question of radicalization. What are we doing as we confront terrorists uh, to ensure that if we take one off the street, we're not creating 10 more? And I think that that was really at the heart of the critique of the Bush counterterrorism <laughs> Uh, program and uh, I think that this is something that has remained a constant and that we continue to try to elaborate on and figure how we can do this job better. Um, we know that we're not going to see an overnight uh, cessation to radicalization or create the environment in which radicalization is vastly more difficult because uh, a lot of the dynamics but, that right. created this threat have been decades but in making. Ambassador, mm -hmm. you would agree that they're not going to be able to close Guantanamo for a long time. I mean, and if well, you do I'm close it, you're just going to have to move the people who are there to someplace else and to another prison. And so far, the Congress won't give them the money to do that. So I think we're uh, going to—it's going to remain open for a while. Bob, it seems to me that we haven't. No, okay. Yeah, go ahead. We haven't really focused on how many of these people are running around the world determined to do great evil to the United States. All the moderate heads of state I've talked to, from Algeria to Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. They all say that uh, the, the total number of real extremists in their society is about 1%. And then you ask them how many fundamentalists they have, they say about 10%. Well, you extrapolate that on a global scale, that gives you 130 million people who approve of the actions of 13 million. And that means we're going to be up against that for long, long years to come. Great. The 13 million is not an accurate reflection of the number who are actually committing violence. Let's stipulate that. So No, but these who would like to commit acts of violence. Yeah, I think that that's uh, an, an overstatement of the actual numbers. Uh, you I don't know exactly what day Guantanamo is going to be closed on, but I know that this president is absolutely committed to closing it down and uh, will do so at the earliest possible moment. If you take the number of uh, youngsters, young boys graduating from the madrasas in Pakistan, you come up with millions of people since 9-11 who have been taught that America is enemy number one. They're totally brainwashed. Of course, they learn the Koran by heart, but they also learn how to hate the United States. And by the end of those 10 years, they're quite willing to sign up for anything. Well, I'm not disputing that there are an awful lot of people who've been inculcated with a particularly potent kind of hatred. Um, very few of those are ever going to have the cultural skills necessary to go somewhere that could really damage the United States. 
And uh, many of them may have the hatred but don't have the actual uh, uh, the kick to go and actually commit violence. There, there is a big difference between uh, intense hatred and actually being able to take up uh, weapons. You know, I, I would just kind of put a bookend on this, this uh, discussion of Guantanamo, and then we will go to some questions. So everybody wants to ask the question, come up to the microphone. It seems to me that, I mean, that one of the lessons I always talk to young reporters about is when you're doing an interview, it's not the first question you ask that is important. It's the follow-up question, which always comes from whatever the person says in response to the first question. And during this presidential campaign, since John McCain and Barack Obama both said, we want to close Guantanamo, we all, and I take as much responsibility because I interviewed both of them many times during the campaign, we all forgot the follow-up question. How are you going to do that? And now uh, we see when you don't ask that follow-up question what kind of happens because I think we still don't know uh, how, how they, with all respect to you, Mr. Ambassador, I think uh, nobody knows what to do with these people at this point would be my, uh, would be my thought on it. Are we ready for some questions? Uh, okay. Right here. Mm. Uh, thank you. Raghubir Goel from India Globe and Asia today. Great panel. My question is that uh, this week President Obama uh, completed his one year in office and also tomorrow is a State of the Union. What do we get uh, and how many points do you give him for one year and as far as terrorism is concerned and other problems going on around the globe? So well, what it doesn't kind of sound like, like, like it was directed at me. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say the magic is gone. The bloom is off the rose, and our allies are very disappointed at what has not happened so far. You hear that everywhere, uh, including many of my moderate Republican friends who voted for uh, President Obama. They're very disappointed at uh, how little progress has been made, and they all seem to say he's taken on too much. He should not have taken on health care to begin with. It could have, he could have left that to the end of, of his term and then campaigned on health, on health. But he obviously was trying to do too much in too little time. And I, I would just uh, capsule it by saying I, I do believe in retrospect, and it's always easy in retrospect. I, I think he probably uh, tried to bite off more than the country mm -hmm. uh, could digest. Uh, at one time, but I think he, he, you know, he launched some very uh, noble initiatives, and I think if you had to give him a grade at this point, it would simply be incomplete. Jan, well, I think like too, to if you look at what the American people think, and the most recent polling on national security issues, he's starting to lose the confidence of the American people. Uh, the polling on some of these issues, whether it's Guantanamo, um, interrogations, uh, the public is starting to shift and think, you know, more overwhelmingly we should not close Guantanamo, uh, much more support of aggressive interrogations, and that we should not have stopped uh, uh, or ending these enhanced interrogation techniques. So he has, I think, an appearance problem at the very least with the American people on some of these issues, and the immediate response to the Christmas Day uh, bombing attempt, I don't think, gave uh, Americans a lot of comfort. Would you like to say something, Ambassador? <coughs> I would just uh, say that uh, it's a really good thing that national security policy and the rule of law are not dictated by uh, spot polls because uh, that's how we do really, really bad things. I think it's vitally important that we keep in mind what our values are. One of the problems we have faced in dealing uh, with this threat and in dealing with our friends around the world is that we didn't navigate by our values. Uh, I think at the end of the day, the president will be seen to have made the right decisions on Guantanamo on enhanced interrogations and uh, um, on a variety of other uh, issues related to this. Um, you know, uh, we, uh, the, the framers of the, of the Constitution were uh, quite insistent that uh, uh, some things be uh, beyond the issue of, uh, of popular consent on a day-to-day -day basis, and I'm personally quite grateful. Well, I, that, and that's <laughs> no, no question. Um, uh, but I think the problem when you start losing the support of the people is that when you have to get Congress involved to put a new prison in Illinois and give you money to bring Guantanamo's from, you know, detainees from Guantanamo, it makes it much more difficult. And if you don't care about that at the end of the day, you're starting to sound an well, awful like George Bush, who was criticized enormously for just saying, I don't care about polls and this is the right thing to do and I don't need to consult Congress. Well, first of all, this president has consulted Congress on, on numerous issues all along the way. Um, I would also uh, question the characterization that he's, he's uh, 
losing support. If you look, to look at the polls in historical context, he's you know in the upper half by uh, any measure uh, compared to where lots of other presidents were after the one-year uh, mark. So I think that it's uh, premature to make these kinds of judgments. Um, Michael Marshall, uh, UPI. Uh, question about Yemen. Um, the Christmas bomber was um, very probably, almost certainly, radicalized in Yemen and quite possibly trained there as well. Uh, so now there's a great deal of focus uh, in the U.S. on what measures we can take to, um, to counter al-Qaeda uh, in Yemen. Um, pressure on the Yemeni government um, to take more action, even though that government has very limited control over, over much of the country. Do you think um, with the pressure arising from the experience of this bomber, we are likely to go into Yemen in a way that makes things worse, or will we actually get it right? And what would getting it right mean in the Yemeni context? Let's let the ambassador take that, and then Orno, I'd oh. like to get your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I'm uh, grateful for the question. Uh, a lot more, uh, much more my home turf than the polls. Um, uh, <coughs> Yemen obviously has, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has obviously come up a notch in terms of uh, our threat perception. And that is due to the fact that they uh, demonstrated a, a desire and uh, at least a, a good deal of the capability to, to carry out an attack against uh, the U.S. at home. And that changes matters. Um, that, that's clearly uh, not a good news story. But the, uh, the other side of the story is that this administration came into office uh, and quickly saw that the deterioration of the security situation, as well as the deterioration of key social econo socioeconomic indicators in Yemen, required that we change paths. And there was a policy that review that began in March uh, that was concluded this fall, and that indicated that we needed a new policy towards Yemen. Uh, it is focused on two efforts. One is strengthening them to uh, strengthening the Yemenis to take on the threats within their borders, uh, particularly Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but also creating uh, the conditions in which this uh, country can uh, strengthen its govern government, strengthen its governance in different uh, parts of the country where it has not been strong, and deal with some of the really critical uh, economic issues that afflict, uh, I think, the hundred and 66th wealthiest nation on earth. And uh, the other good news piece of this is that after um, being distracted by other issues uh, within Yemen for many, many years, uh, the government uh, decided uh, that it needed to take a decisive step against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And that turn came uh, in part because of the uh, really consistent uh, engagement of senior administration officials, including uh, John Brennan from the White House, General Petraeus, my colleague uh, uh, Jeff Feltman and, and uh, at the State Department and many others. And so they have been going after al-Qaeda, the Yemenis have been going after al-Qaeda with a great deal of resolve since uh, December and uh, we are hopeful that that will continue to be the case. We're also encouraged that the international community has recognized what a serious issue Yemen is and that's being uh, discussed at the uh, conference in, in London tomorrow. Jim Jones, when he was uh, NATO Supreme Commander five years ago, took me on a trip, and we stopped uh, to Africa, mostly Muslim countries. We stopped in Djibouti, which is now a U.S. base. It used to be called Camp Lemonnier. It's called Camp Lemonade because they can't pronounce it in French. And it's a former Foreign Legion base. We have almost 2,000 Marines there, and they are very well informed on what's happening in, in Yemen. And this was five years ago, and there was plenty of action already taking place. So I can't conceive of another operation the size of uh, Afghanistan uh, taking place in the, the Arabian Peninsula. And as the president and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs have said, we have no intention right. of putting boots on the ground. Yes. I'd like to go back to the discussion. Hi, Suzanne. I'm Suzanne Spaulding with Bingham Hi. McCutcheon. And I would like to go back to the discussion about um, the handling of uh, Abdul Mutalab. Uh, the Christmas Day bomber uh, attempt, attempted bomber. Um, even if you accept the premise, which I think is very constitutionally questionable suspect, that we could see someone in the United States uh, and throw them into military uh, detention, um, isn't it true that the concern about getting a lawyer would still apply? That, Jan, wasn't it Judge Mukasey who said 
that uh, in a habeas petition, for example, that that those suspected terrorists get access to an attorney. And the Congress and the Military Commissions Act also said in the you know, military commissions you get, a, you get to have a lawyer. So the concern about being lawyered up would not be addressed by that. And then, Dan, isn't there a cost to that uh, policy of treating uh, suspected terrorists as combatants in terms of the point you made about perhaps uh, locking one up and creating ten more? Jan? Um, well, he, it's, it definitely it's true that he would be entitled to a civilian lawyer through the military system if that's how he was tagged. Um, but I think it's no question that that would have been an entirely different type of interrogation that would have been allowed had he gone into that system. And there is precedent for that. I mean, Padilla, for example, was uh, held uh, in a military capacity for about a month uh, before he was then turned over to the um, you know, regular kind of civilian court and I think that um, uh, why this is such an urgent issue for the Obama administration and why the Obama administration is actually internally now trying to weigh uh, whether they did make the right decision and would do that again going forward is because there uh, is, is such valuable intelligence that could be lost. And uh, while these were very able FBI interrogators operating out of that Detroit office, uh, the ability to have a high-value intelligence group once it's up and running uh, interrogate a terror suspect could produce with, with the knowledge of the kind of context um, and, and, you know, kind of be able to connect the dots uh, would make an enormous difference. Um, and that's a decision and a choice that this administration, again, I mean, I don't want to keep, you know, um, beating this drum, but that's a decision that they're going to have to make when they're balancing civil liberties versus national security once again. Um, how they're going to treat, and they've obviously decided that they're not going to do the same kind of interrogations uh, that the Bush administration did, and what is that going to mean, and what are we going to give up? You know, these are choices, these are valid choices, but in leading into her question for you, um, there are consequences to this. But you choices. have, Jan, have you not there reported? Are real, there, are, there will be intelligence loss. Now, you may say you're okay with that because we value civil liberties, but there will be consequences to that decision. I, I just but, wanted to, before, you have reported, have you not, that there is some discussion going on within the administration about whether uh, they ought to go back and, and charge some of these people in, in the military tribunals rather than in the court. Like, well, this is all, second this, guessing this about is all part of this internal review that's going on yeah. right now. And you, as, as we're also seeing, part of this review that's going on right now, not even limited to uh, Abdul Muttalib and the Christmas Day bomber, is how we're going to charge and handle all of these detainees who are now being held at Guantanamo. Are we going to put them in the military commission system, uh, which President Obama, of course, has signed into law? Uh, not all that different, by the way, than the Bush administration's military commission system. Or are we going to put them in regular civilian court, uh, just like a drug dealer who's, you know, kills somebody on the street corner, and bring them here and have them for trial? Now, the Obama administration, and I think what is one of the sharpest breaks um, in terms of a policy matter has decided to bring, as you guys all know, Khalid Mohammed and the top four 9-11 plotters uh, to lower Manhattan and have them go through a regular criminal trial uh, for their roles in uh, the killing 3,000 people on September 11th. Uh, they have decided, however, and not really clearly articulated why, that they're going to have other Guantanamo detainees still go through this military commissions process. So we are already kind of getting a two-track system um, and again, as they go forward, they're going to have, they're still evaluating how they're going to handle some of those guys. We don't know how they're going to handle some of those detainees at Guantanamo. If you don't think that New York is a felicitous, felicitous idea, do you? I think um, whether or not it's the right decision, uh, that's obviously whether it's the right decision to try uh, a terror suspect in federal court, which is now what we're seeing with Abdul Muttalib, it's an entirely different decision to try someone in federal court who has been held in Guantanamo for seven years without charges, uh, subjected to waterboarding, you know, 182 times, to then go in after having put them in the military commission and say, you know what, we're going to put you in the federal courts now, and we're going to give you the full panoply of constitutional rights and procedural rights uh, that any American citizen would get, the right to speedy trial, the right to file a motion for outrageous government con misconduct. Um, they get all of that now. And I've got to say, the problem with these trials in criminal court for KSM and these other four is that it could pervert our entire system of justice. Because when KSM files a motion for outrageous gov government misconduct, which he no doubtably will, 
How is the judge going to evaluate that? Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how, so then what does that mean for the next trial? If you're just a regular defendant, you know, and the judge has ruled that it's not outrageous government misconduct on KSM's behalf, then, you know, what does that mean for our next trial? It's, it, there's a danger that it could actually water down protections for everyone. And so the costs of this, there are real. I mean, again, these are choices, do your cost-benefit analyses. There are real costs to this if these are going to be real trials, you know, if this is just not a show trial. But if it's a show trial and we're doing, why are we doing it? I mean, the point is to show that we're a beacon, our justice system is fair. So, you know. Okay. Well, a few points. Last I checked, we didn't actually have the capability to just do a show trial. We do have constitution and we have laws, and so no, but I don't think that's going to happen. When your attorney general says, when your attorney general testifies that these cases must be won, that well, again, I mean, that suggests <coughs> that right, and you know, a judge won't dismiss them on a technicality, right. which is a constitutional protection, actually. But look, first of all. Um, Political appointees say what we say, what we say, but um, nonetheless, there are still the laws of the land, and, and they'll be observed. I think that the proposition that you always are going to lose intelligence uh, by um, charging people and bringing them to trial is an untested hypothesis, and um, it may be true in some cases, but I would wager that it is untrue in many cases because if you put someone in a criminal justice system you are in a bargaining position. And you can offer them things that they would like to have that will make them talk. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge incentive for a lot of these guys once they've seen the inside of a cell. Um, and let me tell you, if, there, if ever there was a great motivator out there, it's the, it's the notion of spending the rest of your days in a supermax. Um, <clears throat> second, um, I'm not going to comment on what we do here because I work at the State Department, but I will say that at the State Department, we encourage countries around the world to try their terrorists. And we do this for uh, a very important reason. When terrorists are tried, when they are put in courtrooms, and when they are subjected to the same uh, treatment as common criminals, they are deglamorized. They are shown to be not holy warriors, but but just thugs, just people who like to blow things up and kill innocent people. And it has an enormous delegitimating impact. We have uh, done this with many countries around the world. I was just in Jakarta, for example. They have done a fabulous job bringing terrorists to trial, and it has had a profound impact on driving down radicalism and on building public support for their counterterrorism efforts. Countries that simply detain people um, either for a limited or for, in many cases, for an unlimited period, are often only enhancing the perception that they are not legitimate authorities in their own countries. So this is a very important issue for us, and I strongly believe that, uh, that underwriting the rule of law uh, programs we do is a vital part of our counterterrorism, and that it's something that we really ought to expand on. Um, yes, there are uh, intelligence uh, gains that we want to make, but intelligence is not the only uh, is not the only good in this in this contest. And you really need to weigh these things. And believe me, we have found that uh, that uh, putting people in trial has a profound deradicalization value. So it's not you know an unequivocal thing to uh, get that intelligence uh, interrogation. Well, and the best, I guess, there's no to your point. I mean, that wasn't it a Saddam Hussein, I mean, those were carefully, when they were touching his hair on some of those <coughs> photographs, that right. was designed to, exactly. because that's such a grave right. insult. And you know, someone showed me today the picture of, uh, uh, I think there was, I don't know if he was just back in court or not, Manuel Noriega, a man who wanted to be tried in his military uniform, and we said, no, you're going to be tried in, in your civvies. And, you know, he didn't look very forbidding like that. And, frankly, I think it's a good thing when terrorists are cut down to size. Right here. Andy Cutchin, CSIS. Uh, <coughs> terrific panel. Thanks very much. I'm really enjoying this. I'd like to change the, the topic a little bit, though. Uh, Ambassador Benjamin mentioned the uh, London conference uh, coming up uh, in a couple of days uh, for our allies and partners to discuss uh, our strategy in Af Afghanistan. Uh, other important meetings taking place this week in Ankara and Islamabad and other other places. Last week, the uh, the State Department did release a uh, a document uh, elaborating a uh, uh, a new strategy for Afghanistan for stabilization uh, stabilization of Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
And I'd like uh, to hear our panelists discuss what they think to be some of the strengths and weaknesses and, and key differences uh, in this, uh, uh, this approach to uh, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Thanks. And, right Andy, I think you know better than most people is that uh, when, uh, after 9-11, when our allies rushed into Afghanistan after we'd liberated the place, uh, they thought they'd be there for seven or eight or nine months, not seven, eight or nine years. And the pressures to get out as quickly as possible are enormous. Uh, the Canadians, who were obviously authorized to fight, along with the Dutch and the Brits, they all want out by 2011 at the latest, some by the end of 2010. So the pressure right now is on, as you've seen just reading between the lines, for negotiations that would lead to some kind of coalition of warlords, the Karzai government, elements of Taliban, whether all that is going to work or not, I have no idea. But I do know from my experiences with Mullah Omar in Kandahar three months before 9-11 that he was already pretty annoyed with Osama bin Laden. He said, you won't see him. He talks too much. He issues too many fatwas. He has no business issuing fatwas as he didn't complete his religious education. I said, well, you didn't complete yours either, did you, Mullah Omar? He said, well, you're quite right, but I don't issue fatwas. I said, what do you do then? He said, well, my council of elders issues fatwas and I, I countersign them. It was quite clear that there was tension, tension between Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar. And I know that uh, the ambassador doesn't agree because he told me at the time that we tried everything possible to get Osama bin Laden out, uh, and I still think it could have been done. Anyway, it wasn't done, but it could, it could still happen. Ambassador, I'll give you the last word here. We're we really tried to get him out. I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> we tried very hard. We, we ran up against a brick wall with the, uh, um, with the uh, Taliban. Um, well, uh, I think that actually uh, what was uh, a much criticized um, process was very deliberative uh, and uh, well thought through. And while obviously there is a, a deep desire not to be there forever, I think there's also uh, an important uh, value, really a critical value, uh, in showing that we are going to uh, stay the course with the Afghan people, that we're prepared to uh, take very seriously their security needs, that we're going to protect their populations, that we are going to uh, be there, uh, certainly in the civilian sense, for the long haul, because that is what's going to embolden them to uh, you know, pursue uh, a path of uh, state building and, and democratization and, uh, and stability. And uh, I think that we have uh, gotten a good balance, and I think the President has uh, done a good job in terms of uh, showing the way forward. Obviously, this is not easy. Obviously, we think that uh, a lot uh, was neglected in the period that we were, as a nation, focusing uh, on Iraq. And, uh, you know, a lot of us wish we weren't uh, this far down this particular road. Um, but um, the security interests there that we have are enormous. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, our commitment is uh, exactly the right thing to do under these circumstances. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's one thing I know how to do, it's get off on time. <laughs> it is that time. Thank you all so much for... <laughs> Thank you, Bob. We're done as usual.